You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome, listeners, to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is David Grubbs, uh, graduate assistant in the English department here at the University of Georgia, and I'm going to be your host this week. Uh, with me this week, as in all of the preceding 45-plus weeks, is Nathan Gilmore. He's an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you doing this uh, f- fine, fine day, Nathan? This week has been running me ragged, David. We are wrapping up the montage, the Student Literary Journal. We're in the process of printing, and that always means dealing with technology, and that's always a sweaty, unpleasant affair. Ironically, technology is invented so you don't have to sweat as much. <laughs> call, call me a postmaniac if you must. Uh, well, also, uh, well, you've already heard his voice, and... Well, Michael Farmer, who is uh, an instructor, adjunct instructor of developmental writing at Tallahassee Community College, with other greater things in store in the near f- near future. So, uh, how are you, Michael? I am uh, doing pretty well. This end of the semester is nearing, which means I will soon not be teaching remedial writing anymore. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty pleased, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, exciting, exciting stuff. Um, well, uh, as I mentioned, this is uh, our our 45th even number episode. Are we going to get 50? Are we going to hit 50 before the end of the uh, semester? I don't think so. That would put us. Well, maybe that would put us into May. Don't we usually stop at the end of April? Usually, yes. Okay. So maybe it, it maybe we'll be, do it, it just to go to 50. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or it might be that 5.0 hits on a summer episode. It's hard telling. Well, we got to do something. We got to do something special for fifty because that's like that's significant. That's a that's meaty. I mean, in reality, we have far more than fifty because we have all those point X episodes. Well, that's right. true. The but decimals. like the like the Romans of old, we decided that there would be no king of the Christian Humanist podcast. So if the three <laughs> of us are not present, it is not an official episode. Yeah, a quorum is not enough. Well, we have a quorum of three. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we get into this week's discussion, which is our, our going to be our third week looking at um, Richard Weaver's Language is Sermonic, um, before we do that, uh, have we got any, any, any housekeeping to do? Um, any, any, anything interesting up on the blog? Oh, no. the usual Bible post, uh, the usual links post. I will say for those of you listeners who listen to CWC, the radio show, I have been in communication with Chris Gerritz, uh, who is one of the hosts of that show. And what a name dropper, huh? Ooh, Nathan knows Chris Gerritz. <laughs> We're all very impressed. Well, at any I mean, rate, he he said that 
there would not be new episodes uh, this week and possibly for another week to come because the IT department has messed up their iTunes U account. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so keep listening. The uh, big 150th episode of CWC will be available on iTunes eventually, just not right now. Okay. So while they're off uh, a few weeks, you think we can catch up with them? Yeah, 100 episodes in two weeks. That that sounds great. We're not Christ the Sinner. We can't record that many at once. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true. Um, Well... If uh, if that's all if that's all we got, I, I don't know of any of, of any feedback other than a few little comment threads on uh, some of the blog posts for this past week. So, uh, listeners, I encourage you to be readers too, and uh, you know check out the blog, and uh, we will uh, be 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 posting meaty and substantive things. Actually, mostly Nathan will be posting meaty and substantive things. Um, <laughs> Grubsy will uh, post April Fool's jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I did want to say that apparently our discussion of profanity was very interesting to the listeners last week. So we got well, some I, comments on <laughs> on our discussion of profanity, which I have been agonizing over ever since we recorded it. <laughs> well, apparently they wanted us to push that one further. You know that yeah. that was about the cleanest discussion of profanity I've ever been a part of or heard. So. <laughs> Yeah, you you could you could practically you know smell the latex gloves and hand sanitizer as we you know kind of pick around that stuff as delicately as possible. <laughs> anyway, all right. So this week our conversation is rounding out our our Weaver triptych. Um, we're focusing on the the essay that is uh, also the title of the book, which is "Language is Sermonic." This essay is really, I think, a culmination of all that comes before it in this book. Uh, so, I think maybe some of this conversation will make more sense, dear listeners, if you have listened to the first two of the triptych. Um, but even so, we'll, we'll we'll make a good stab at being coherent. Um, this was interesting to me that he, he that he started off the essay with with kind of a a, a reminiscence on on English departments in, of the past, which for him his English department is in the past for us. But uh, he starts off with a description of what are to him the good old days in the English departments. Um, so Nathan, what in these good old days made him happy and made me actually kind of grumpy? <laughs> well, first of all, Weaver is talking about the days, really we can trace it to the influence of one person in America, and that is Charles Eliot of Harvard. Uh, he is the person who brought over the model of the German university and really made it a fixture in the Ivy League. Uh, since the Ivy League set so many trends for so many universities in America, uh, these were the days when the classics were really the core of every curriculum. If you look back at catalogs from everything from University of Georgia to Midwestern universities, pretty much most places in America uh, would have been places where you spent your time learning the classics, which is to say Latin and Greek. You would have been studying literature, but you would have been studying it in the, in the original languages, and the narratives of those classical texts would have been secondary to skill in the languages themselves. So what Weaver says is, back then, 
the people who are teaching the literary text themselves uh, would have been, and I think he's exaggerating here, the base <laughs> mechanicals, to quote Shakespeare, which he does, uh, whereas the professor of rhetoric uh, would have been a person of substance. It would have been someone who uh, was placed high in the faculty, so to speak, uh, because that would have been the culmination of a liberal arts education. The idea was not to master a body of information so much as it was to become conversant with this body of literature so that you could go out and speak, write, and otherwise communicate eloquently. Uh, so, you know, the three of us being literature teachers uh, <laughs> and the three of us being lovers of literature and the three of us being part of a system that has developed really in the 20th century where the focus is not on learning Latin and Greek in a literature class, but it's in, well, I mean, for, for lack of a better phrase, I mean, it's for the humanistic elements within those literary texts. Uh, you know, what Weaver talks about as, you know, the old days where, you know, literature was for mechanics uh, strikes us as very odd and makes David very grumpy. Yeah, very, very, very grumpy. As if, <laughs> as if well, I mean, he, he, he talks about author, author, authors and periods as if that's mainly what we talk about in lit class. But anyway. Right, right. Um, well, but by the time we get to uh, this essay, though, it's Weaver who's the grumpy one. Um, because the good old days have, have become the bad nowadays. Um, what led to the change of fortune uh, for rhetoric that Weaver's talking about? Well, uh, really a few things. I mean, one of the things about the history of the university is that whenever you admit a new population into the university, everyone freaks out and thinks that education is going down the drain forever and ever. Uh, <laughs> and this happened in America in the... 1870s roughly through about the turn of the 20th century, uh, all of a sudden university became not only for the sort of aristocratic families of the East Coast, but it became democratized to a great deal so that actual working class people uh, started going to university. And of course, because their education was very different from an East Coast private school education, these professors just absolutely went bananas and said, all right, we need to create this course called Freshman Composition. Uh, and, you know, that's when it was born, in the late 19th century. And the aims of this class were not to study rhetoric and eloquence philosophically, uh, but the aims of this class were to basically bring these people up to the level of someone who had graduated from a private high school. And so you get the birth, really, of the service class in the English department, uh, which is taught usually by people without terminal degrees. Uh, in those early days, often the classes would have as many as 150 people in them. They would be writing a theme a week, and these underpaid teachers would literally grade papers until midnight every night, seven days a week, uh, to earn their pittance. Uh, and so, I mean, in Weaver's day, this has somewhat changed. Uh, they've recovered somewhat from it, but by that time, you really do have the beginnings of what we know now as the graduate student workforce, uh, where the prestigious professors do not teach the college freshmen. They teach students of, or classes full of graduate students, and those graduate students in turn teach the freshman comp classes. 
this sort of pyramid. I don't want to call it a pyramid scheme because that has moral <laughs> overtones that I don't necessarily want to be associated with. Maybe structure. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure. This triangle this, opportunity. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> but this pyramid of the English department, you know, really does, really is sort of taking shape in Richard Weaver's day. And of course, we've mentioned before that Weaver is an oddity, even in his own day in that he is a well-known, nationally known professor of rhetoric, and he teaches freshman comp all the way through his academic career. But, you know, the wheel ke- uh, in the sky keeps on turning, so um, it seems like rhetoric star has risen again, um, especially if you look at the English job market. Um, so, Michael, why, why, why are we seeing rhetoric come back again? What's, what's different from when Weaver's writing and... Well, when we're talking. Well, it's worth noting that Weaver blames the decline of rhetoric not so much on the on the rise of the graduate student as on the, the rise of the scientific man who demands absolute objectivity in all things because rhetoric, as, as Weaver claims quite rightly, speaks not just to the reason, although it speaks to the reason, and it speaks to the entire man. And the entire man is something Weaver says that... Uh, the, the narrowly scientific people who are ru- running the academy in his day are not interested in. So that's why, we, that's why he sees rhetoric on the decline. Now, obviously, that still stands to a certain degree. I think science is still largely ascendant in our, in our society, whether we, whether we recognize that immediately or not. Mm-hmm. But, but added to it, you get what I'm going to call just a wholly subjectively emotional man uh, this is this is the tor- sort of student to whom the teacher would say, "Express yourself, do what you feel." Everybody, no matter how they perform, gets a ribbon. This is this is utter subjectivity, and I think it's it's fairly obvious that it has also ascended in our in our culture. So you get the scientist and the uh, I don't even know what to call that person, the subjectivist. <laughs> battling for control in our society and at different times we praise both of them absolutely mm. <laughs> um, at the same time in the academy you have the rise of postmodernism and relativism uh, almost as you've mentioned in past episodes David almost a return to Plato's Gorgias who says that mm. it doesn't matter the content of what you're teaching as long as you persuade people so so you have s- those three forces yeah. competing Ah. And what that results in is this undervalued rhetoric department staffed by the graduate students Nathan's talking about. And and the department has very little clear purpose other than the kind of nebulous idea of teaching people to write better. So Comp 1 becomes either a culture, cultural studies course or it becomes remedial grammar, depending on who's teaching it. And Comp 2 is either phased out altogether or it's turned into a straight literature class, which is, uh, you know... How I teach it, <laughs> right? But FSU doesn't even FSU's comp two is just an extension of comp one. It's like I think they call it visual rhetoric. I, I know they have a unit on Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and to I mean to me this is this is a step away from what Weaver is praising in 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 rec comp studies. Mm. Well, so you you say that rhetoric star is on the rise, and it is kind of, but it's only on the rise because. Um, schools have a required comp one comp two cycle that all students have to go through it, it's on the rise in the sense they need people to teach that cycle because nobody really wants to teach it right. and, and moreover, uh, 
I'll go ahead, Michael. But but at the same time, those classes aren't particularly valuable, either in terms of how people see them from the outside or how students who have gone through them, what they take away from them. Right. And if you look at the job listings, Michael, I mean, I'm following up on what you're saying. Uh, what you'll see is a lot of those rhetoric and composition jobs aren't for rhetorical theorists per se, so much as they are for writing center administrators. So mm. in other words, they need uh, crew bosses for all of the graduate students. Uh, right. And, you know, the, this is honestly, you know, and I, I've, I've done some coursework in rhetoric over at the University of Georgia, and this is one of the things that makes them bang their heads against the wall is that rhetoric is, and I agree with this, Rhetoric is a subject matter worth studying in its own right, worth theorizing about in its own right, worth the speculative work. Uh, but when students go out there with their ret comp degrees, what people want them to do is administer flocks of grad students. Mm. Or, the, who again, or they who want again a Gorgias. Kind of... Say that again now? Or they want a Gorgias, someone who's just going to come in here and, and teach technique. Right, right, but those but those jobs, David, are just about as rare as the jobs for Updike scholars or old English people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not not quite as rare because Christian colleges do call for people to teach to actually teach freshman comp. Right, because mm -hmm. right. I applied for several of those jobs. <laughs> That's true. I didn't that get any true. of them, <laughs> but I applied for them. Right. Well, I think we can turn now uh, to the title of the essay, uh, Language is Sermonic, which I think sums up Weaver's theory of rhetoric in light of uh, the way he sees humanity. Um, so, Nathan, if you could uh, briefly, if you could unpack the title, and especially in contrast with this definition of humanity that, that Weaver rejects. All right, sure. First of all, what Michael just described as the scientific human being, the rational decision-making machine, uh, this is the definition of humanity that largely comes to dominate the social sciences in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, this is really the rise of Keynesian and other sorts of capitalist theories. Uh, this is the sort of thing that Francois Lyotard talks about when he writes about meta-narratives in his The Postmodern Condition. All right, so... This is an age of supreme confidence in uh, the rationality of human beings. Even in the wake of World War II, which certainly made people rethink what rationality is, uh, even after World War II, you have a resurgence of confidence in institutions like the United Nations that still think that dialogue and reason and those sorts of things are ultimately what's going to bring things to bear. Now, Weaver is all about trying to persuade people in public forums, so on that level of thing on that level of thinking, he would definitely be in favor of international diplomacy. That said, because he believes that humanity is a holistic being, someone whose emotional life, spiritual life, psychological life, intellectual life are not separable hermetically uh, but always inform each other, always pull each other, always exist in that dialectical tension or tetro tetralectical tension. I think I named <laughs> things, didn't I? Anyway, uh, because the human being is a composite being, I'll put it that way to use a theological word, uh, he rejects that idea that the rational can 
stand alone when we talk about human things. Now, what does it mean for language to be sermonic? The answer is that no matter what we are doing with our language, uh, we are always trying to persuade people either to think about something differently than they did before or exist in a way that's different than the way they existed before. Uh, so one of the things that I always have to break my students of, uh, and you know, I, I enjoy the work, so I keep doing it year after year, and my students are always shocked year after year, but they come into the class always thinking that there are two classes of sentences that exist in human language. There is the fact, and there is the opinion. <laughs> and I have to always convince them that the opinion is always about something, so it's not simply inside your head and nowhere else. And the fact, of course, is always trying to persuade us that this or that is an implication of the fact. Uh, there's very rarely a statement of simple fact. It's almost always a composite statement that involves both fact and interpretation. And so, you know, this, uh, this idea that language is sermonic goes back to what we talked about two episodes ago with the Phaedrus. Uh, because the human soul is always in motion, uh, any sort of verbal performance, written performance, any sort of textual exchange between human beings is always going to be moving the other party towards thinking or acting differently than they do. Uh, and, you know, this is, like, like you said before, David, this is something that relativism can pick up on and say, all right, you know, uh, to reverse the old, you know, Bacon thing, and we're we're going to talk about this saying a little bit later, but, you know, not only is true, you know, not only is knowledge power, but power is also a sort of knowledge. Uh, so, I mean, you know, from the relativist point of view, they're certainly interested in rhetoric, but, you know, something that I'm certainly interested in as a Christian humanist is saying that, you know, the the Christian confession is inherently rhetorical as well. All right. Uh, Michael, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling now. Do you have anything to add to all that? Just that. I think the, the scientific objectivity kind of lives on in our students in the sense that they believe that rhetoric contains no motion whatsoever. It either absolutely describes the world or it has no effect on anyone. Mm, okay. So, so you know, we're we're free to say things, and uh, what what we say has no motion. It has no direction. It is it is either abjectly describing the world, or it's um, value free. Okay. And but I think that that's fact. that's part of a larger trend that would say most things we do are value free. I I, uh, I really I really believe that's right, how right. And I that really would relegate everything to the realm of opinion, then. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, opinions which have no no sense of compulsion. You have yours, I have mine, and there's no particular reason why I should exchange mine for yours. And, and, and in that sense, that scientific objectivity looks an awful lot like that postmodern relativity. Mm. Mm, okay. I mean, because because both of them would make rhetoric something that is kind of out outside the realm of the uh beneficial okay i can see that because if if everything is just your opinion why bother trying to persuade anybody right and more importantly why bother listening to anyone trying to persuade you 
Right, right. Well, I think moving, um, kind of moving this conversation forward, at least the the way Weaver does it, I, I like that he kind of sets up these ideas, but then he gets he gets very specific about um, the kinds of appeals that classically are associated with rhetoric. Um, he mm-hmm. seems to be trying to rehabil- rehabilitate some that, uh, you know, that more scientific view that just wants that that doesn't value opinion or or the statement of things that aren't simply fact. Um, that per- that perspective seems to view some some kinds of rhetorical approach as invalid, and he seems to want to rehabilitate some of those, but at the same time, um, caution us about some others. Um, so I think, I, I think we, we can turn our conversation towards, towards this, this half of, of Weaver's essay now. Um, he talks about, uh, what, what he calls the topics of rhetoric, which, mm-hmm. which go back to, uh, go back to Aristotle. Is that Yay. Topoi? The, is that, is that Topoi? Um, uh, Topoi is the nominative plural. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, do you want to say something, uh, just define those very briefly? Well, sure. These are uh, a section of Aristotle's rhetoric. Uh, these are topoi, uh, which woodenly translated means places. Uh, this mm-hmm. is the root of our English expression, commonplaces. So in other words, these are psychological places you can go, stand up on these places, speak from these places, and you can rely on audiences following along with you. Uh, in other words, these things are common enough, hence commonplaces, uh, that you don't have to explain to your audience, okay, I'm about to demonstrate to you that one thing causes another, and if you agree that one thing causes another, then you need to agree with my conclusion. You don't need right. to say that part. You know, this is what Aristotle calls the enthymeme. Uh, you know, your audience already has in mind that if you can demonstrate that one thing causes another, then therefore you should regard the cause as a positive or negative thing based on the effect that it brings. Right. Just to right. give one example, I mean, we're going to talk about four of these topoi, uh, yeah. but all of these are basic structures of thought that Aristotle sets up. Right. I just wanted to make that clear at the outset, though, so that when we're talking about topics, we don't think like, like well, you know, as so many of my students do when they come up, like, I don't know what topic to use. Right, and what right. they what they mean is subject, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, they don't want you to say, "Well, why don't you try analogy?" <laughs> not not helped by the fact that the uh, technical writing calls the first sentence of every paragraph the topic sentence. Right, right. No, not not helped at all. Well, the the first broad category of topic that Weaver introduces is the definition. Now, we talked a bit about definitions in the last episode, especially terms that uh, appear to buck free of their their temptation and take the bit in their teeth and just run. Um, but it's worth bringing up again. So what function does definition play in Weaver's recuperation of rhetoric? Definition, when Weaver takes it on, is... Again, a structure of thought. So in other words, we're talking about the limits of a concept. Uh, this or that concept is this, but not that. And in other of, of Weaver's writings, I want to appeal to his uh, essay on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he says that this is one of the keystone pieces of rhetoric that defines American thought life. 
Uh, and Richard Weaver just absolutely idolizes Abraham Lincoln. He thinks that he is the heart of genuine Americanness. Uh, even knees. after last, what now? Yeah, the- <laughs> even after last week, we talked about American as one of those vague God terms. Um, but in the uh, oh goodness, the the congressional, the senatorial debates, Lincoln Douglas debates. There we go. Sorry, I blanked out on that a second. Uh, Weaver appeals to those and says that the core of Abraham Lincoln's arguments against slavery have to do with a strong definition of humanity. Uh, In other words, he wants to establish at the outset what a human being is, what counts as a human being, uh, to demonstrate that the black man is a species of this genus called human being, Uh, No, strike that. He is an instance of the species human being. There we go. Pardon me. Uh, And therefore, uh, whatever legal protections, moral obligations, uh, spiritual connections that human beings have with one another, the white people therefore have with the black people, even if they wickedly deny it. Mm. And I wanted to bring that up as a specific example to sort of back into talk of definition, because for Weaver, this move to definition is a particularly American commonplace precisely because so much in our founding documents, the constitution, the declaration of independence, um, you know, the federalist papers, things of this sort have at their root, this idea that there is a strong metaphysical set of definitions. uh, And he points to them as rhetorical reminders of those realities and he says that, you know, part of the American psyche is to say that the old European ways and the imperial ways of the European powers are denying those core definitions and therefore must be resisted. Mm. And so, you know, again, you know, I realized I backed into it and now I'm circling around it. But <laughs> definition for Weaver uh, is that topic, that commonplace uh, that allows you to really dig into the essence and the reality of things and remind people that even though they have become accustomed to deceit, duplicity, and unreality, that deep down they know that they're being duplicitous, unreal, and otherwise stupid, and therefore they ought to come to their senses. Mm. So what are, what are definitions anchored in? Well, definitions are anchored in the essential realities, which is to say, if you've got a class of beings, they are those things which are common to those class of beings and always will be common to those class of beings, irrespective of what historical contingency attempts to demonstrate otherwise. Right. Which sounds to me like pretty much unapologetic Platonism. Yes, it is. (laughs) So how does that stand up with the way rhetorical theory is being being taught now you know for for you who are who you know you you've got some training in 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 rhetoric uh, as, uh-huh. as part of your own job prep you know how, how how does that fit absolutely well what's interesting is if you scratch the surface of a lot of rhetorical big shots right now you'll find that they are doing the weaver thing but not admitting it Uh, And the reason I say that is, you know, they will say on the outset that, you know, certain uh, common historical definitions of things are 
you know, keeping people repressed, oppressed, and otherwise suppressed uh, in these sort of, you know, logocentric or whatever theoretical word you want to use constructs, right? So, you know, it tells women that they are this essentially when actually they could be something else. It tells, you know, minorities that they are this when they could be something else, so on and so forth. But if you take a step beyond that and say, okay, then what is it that they should do instead of that? What you'll find is that these theorists will articulate basically an Abraham Lincoln sort of definition of what a human being is. You know, so I mean, you know, the 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 fact that liberty of will is at the core of Abraham Lincoln's definition of humanity and the fact that these people who are critiquing western ideologies of gender, race, class and other social divisions they are basically aiming for the same thing Weaver is as far as I can tell um, Michael am I oversimplifying this? I don't think so but I don't know as much about re- current rhetorical theory as you do okay, so you're right. oversimplifying it I'm not aware of it alright well listeners if I'm oversimplifying it by all means comment on christianhumanist.org I'm sure, I'm sure the people you're describing would be absolutely horrified to hear you compare them to Weaver though <laughs> right, right. Although most of them would be thrilled that I was comparing them to Abraham Lincoln, so I think I I split the bill. The <laughs> one, uh, the the the, uh, the five dollar bill, I believe. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, Very nice. Oh, well, let's turn to another topic. Um, topic, topic. Uh, Weaver also points to cause and effect as one of the more popular rhetorical topics. So. What role does this play in his metaphysical approach to rhetoric? And and this is aimed at you, Michael. Um, how does this topic highlight what he considers the ethical responsibility of a rhetorician? Well, he does not like cause and effect as much as he likes definition. But he thinks it's necessary because we're historical. We live in history, so occasionally you have to appeal to history. That's what cause and effect does. Uh, it is a pragmatic method of arguing. Mm-hmm. And it works on phenomena rather than on essence. So it's not quite the opposite of the definition, but it, it is certainly a step down because you're not dealing with eternal verities. You're dealing with the here and the now. Mm. Um, his problem with it is because of that, it can become easily, very easily divorced from principles and from ideals. And those are the things he likes. So, and it, it can play on fears and anxiety of the audience. So because of that, it easily slides into base rhetoric, as we talked about it a few weeks ago. Um, and what he finds especially pernicious in cause and effect is an appeal to circumstance, which is basically, we have to do this because there's nothing else we can do. And, and there's an obvious connection there, I think, to the progress. Progress is a God term that we talked about last week. And I think of the Bob Dylan song, The Times They Are a Changing, where he says, uh, your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand. Well, that is an appeal to circumstance. All right. you can do is get out of the road or move forward. There's no resisting it. So here's the only action you can take. That may be true or it may not be true, but it's base rhetoric because it plays on fears and anxieties rather than on anything um, mm-hmm. anything eternal. So well, the, good, the good rhetorician has a responsibility to be careful using cause and effect or slippery slope arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, Slippery slope arguments are sometimes called a fallacy. I'm not sure why they are. It seems like sometimes they are legitimate. It's just they've been so overused 
that mm. they've become a fallacy. It's well, the, they, it's, it's the good called... rhetorician's responsibility to not to not use the slippery slope argument wrongly. Right. If I remember correctly, they're called um, they're they're one of the ones called informal fallacies, which means that their fallaciousness isn't in their logical construction, but in the fact that they might not line up with the facts. Um, that's why, uh, well, the the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, because something happens after something means that the thing that came before it caused it. Well, very often that is the case, but it's an informal fallacy because if the if if the facts don't back up that argument, it's it's not it's not the form of the argument that's wrong it's the substance that it's working with right and so like there's a there's such a thing as a hysterical slippery slope argument such as right. if we allow gay people to marry each other then eventually people will be able to marry armchairs <laughs> that's a hysterical argument based on a slippery slope but there's also a, a reasonable slippery slope argument to be made such as if if we legalize gay marriage churches might be forced to marry gay couples right against now, their conscience yeah and th that may or may not be true but it is a reasonable slippery slope argument not a fallacious one right right because there's a body of legal precedent that points to that possibility as a genuine possibility right right whereas the armchair marriage <laughs> There's no such precedent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and un unless you count the uh, you know the the gentleman in uh, Japan who well married a doll. But he had a body pillow, Kamiko. Yeah. Yeah. James Franco did that, I think. <laughs> no, that was a mirror. <laughs> no, there was a uh, there was a thirty there was a Thirty Rock <laughs> episode where he's in a relationship with a body pillow, Kamiko. Uh -huh. uh <laughs> I forgot not to reference uh, current sitcoms with you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we we don't watch this. No, not not out of any kind of disapproval necessarily. I just David doesn't even own a TV. TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Enough of that topic. Um, another. Well, th this is similar to cause and effect. Um, in in that it's a it's a relationship between things that's being. Uh, that's being proposed. Um, analogy. That's a, another topic mm -hmm. that, that Weaver brings up. Now, it seemed to me that when Weaver started talking about analogy, he got, he got like all mystical and stuff. And it seemed like he was just cranking <laughs> up his Platonism to 11. So <laughs> do you want to talk about that, Nathan? Yeah, sure. I can. I, I mean, I think that, Certainly when you talk about Plato, you're talking about uh, a situation where desire can be for bodily reality or it can be for abstract reality or ultimately it can be for ideal reality. Uh, so certainly there are levels of reality there. I think, though, that when Weaver is dealing with analogy, he's dealing with it more from a, an Aristotelian Thomist tradition okay. uh, within the body of... Uh, especially the Summa Theologica, but also the Compendium Theologica, uh, and probably some of his other readings too, but that pretty much exhausts my Thomas reading. Uh, <laughs> Thomas talks about reality as analogical, and he talks about it this way because we have to be able to say something about divine revelation. Uh, the Summa Theologica is really a, an extended, and by extended I mean really extended, 
uh, <laughs> meditation on divine revelation. In other words, when God reveals God's self, what is it that human beings are experiencing in that revelation? And, you know, to, in order even to get there, he has to discuss the inherent capabilities of humanity. Uh, but eventually when he gets to the essence of God, so to speak, he always makes a point to say that our sentences about God are true if they are, you know, emerging out of Christian tradition, uh, but they are true analogically. In other words, when we say that God is love, we are not saying that what we experience as eros or philia or even agape in the way that Paul encourages agape for one another in his letters, uh, that is not identical with what we're talking about when we talk about divine love. Uh, but it is analogous. In other words, it is an infinite sort of love, and therefore it is infinitely distant from human love. And yet, because it flows from God, because it is a gift from God, therefore that human love participates in the reality of divine love. All right. Now, if that is just entirely too abstract and too philosophical, Weaver brings it down to earth, so to speak, for us and says that when we find metaphorical uh, connections between things, when we find analogical th connections between things, uh, between earthly contexts, uh, what we are doing is not, as Nietzsche would have it, simply imposing some sort of mental superstructure on the chaos of raw material reality. Uh, and that is, you know, sort of the, unfortunately, the, the ideology that motivates a lot of modern rhetorical theory that that Nietzschean idea that, you know, what you're doing is simply imposing order where there is actually chaos. But in, instead, Thomas would say that what we are doing is we are discovering the ordered and the beautiful structure of reality as God has created it. That is actually a moment where we are, where God is disclosing analogically the divine mind to us, and therefore the delight that we experience when we find metaphoric connections, simile connections, analogical connections between things on earth, uh, that delight is an overflow of divine love. It's not simply self-congratulation, as Nietzsche would have it in his essay. Uh, I think it's truth and lie in a non-moral sense, but I always forget the the exact title of that. Uh, so it at depends any rate, on I mean, the uh, depends on the translation, but it's on truth and lying in a non-moral sense, or on truth and lies in an extra-moral sense. There we go. That's the one. Thank you, Michael. Uh, so at any rate, I mean, when we bring it back to rhetoric, David, what we're talking about here is, you know, when you convince an audience or convince a reader or convince a user, if you're doing web rhetoric, uh, which is what my class <laughs> is doing right now, uh, and I do teach web rhetoric, so, you know, if you've got jokes about that, remember you're joking on me too, fool. Uh, but when you're doing rhetoric and you're teaching students to persuade audiences with analogy, what Weaver would say is you're not deceiving them. You are not uh, pretending that there is order when there is actually chaos. But if you're doing it truly, if you're doing it in good faith, and if you're doing it in light of the best apprehension of that reality that you've got at hand, what you're really doing is sharing with that audience a little touch of divine reality. And he says that's actually very, very good in that platonic sense, to bring it back to Plato, David. Uh, Michael, I mean, can you think of any analogous things to say? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I, I had a I had a hard time understanding that that section too, although uh, I'm I'm glad you explained it. Okay, I, am, okay. I am not enough of a Platonist to get get my head around that so, analogy <laughs> stuff. So so I wasn't crazy to think about Dante ascending levels of heaven in. in oh, not by any means. Not by character. any means. No, no. And in <laughs> fact, you know, if you think of the end of the Paradise, uh, which I know Michael tries not to do. Uh, you know, what you have is as Dante approaches closer and closer to divinity in that final canto, you know, first of all, he sees the, 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 the point, the point of light, the utter simplicity of God. And then as he approaches closer, he comes to realize that there is a human face looking back at him. And, you know, this is the incarnate deity. And eventually as he approaches even closer to God there in that final canto, uh, he realizes that it's actually a series of three intermeshing and dancing spheres in eternal love with each other and overflowing in their love into reality. And, you know, that is sort of the final beatific vision uh, that Dante has of divinity. And this is, you know, what he says at the end is what he knows that he must write down for the benefit of humanity. So, so it's I mean, like those know. pictures of Darth Vader made up of smaller pictures of Darth Vader? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> that is a false analogy. <laughs> I'm bad at this. <laughs> but I, I guess this, this makes, um, again, the informal fallacy of a false analogy, it makes it that much more important, right? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, one of the things that... As a rhetoric teacher, you know, as someone who teaches writing in college and who teaches rhetorical approaches to literature in my literature classes, really, uh, one of the things that I'm always trying to keep my eyes open for is, you know, when a narrative constructs a world in a certain way, you know, that always involves relationships between characters and setting and plot events and things like that. And I always want my students to look at how those things relate to each other. I want them to be able to name them truthfully, name what's actually there in the text, but especially at a place like Emmanuel College, I also want them to be able to name where those things ring false because they are an analogy that doesn't strike them as divinely beautiful. Mm. And incidentally, that's also why you know I can take such great joy in teaching you know the grotesque stories of Flannery O'Connor. It's because there are these moments of incarnation in those stories where, you know, for instance, at the end of a, a, a good man is hard to find, you know, the insufferable grandmother for a brief moment there, you know, becomes this universal mother. She becomes the face of Christ in the middle of this story. And then she gets shot because it's Flannery O'Connor after all. Uh, but, you know, it, it's one of those moments I can point to with my students and say, look, you know, this is what it looks like for Christ to show up when you don't expect him. Mm. Cool. Well, after that, I, 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 I'm sorry, Michael, but the, the, this, the next question actually feels like a little anticlimactic because we just went to heaven with Dante and Richard Weaver. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. But uh, this one I, I think is, is, is just as practical um, because one of the topics I've always counseled my students to be cautious about is arguments from authority. And so, uh, Michael, would you say that Weaver would, thinks that I've led my students astray in that? 
Yes, I would, but I don't think he's right. Okay, carry <laughs> uh, on. Weaver th- seems to think that our resistance to arguments from authority is a product of the modern age in which, and this is him talking, all authority is presumptuous. That's what he says. He is wrong. Um, our resistance to authority goes back much, much further than the modern age. Uh, in the fifth decade before Christ, Cicero is talking about uh, how arguments from authority don't carry any weight, and that's in uh, that's in the nature of the gods. That's 50 BCE. So I mean, it is it is clearly not the modern age that has decided the argument from authority is is wrong. That is that is something ancient. Um, but the interesting thing is, he thinks we're going to depend on arguments from authority in the future, aka the present, because knowledge has become so specialized. Mm, and right. I think that's partly true. But my students still resist professional authority because they think they think they know better than the authorities on, I don't know, science or uh, social science or art or anything else. So I, I think even as knowledge becomes more specialized, and even as the even as we would need to lean more on authority, we kind of live in a society where everyone assumes they're a polymath. <laughs> everyone thinks they're Aristotle, or or Leonardo da Vinci or something. Right. Yeah. And now here's an interesting question, though: Do you let your students use the Bible as an authority in class on their papers? It depends on what they're writing about. Mm-hmm. What do you and mean? I mean, what 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 I mean by that is, you know, first of all, I want them to give me some kind of interpretive framework. Tell me why this passage from the Bible speaks to the moment that you're trying to speak to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and second of all, you know, I want them to use sources that are appropriate to the question at hand. So, for instance, uh, when my students wrote their papers on the nature of freedom or liberty. Uh, I said, you know, if you think that the Bible has something genuinely truthful to say about that question, go ahead and cite it, but you better explain to your reader why that particular passage answers the question that you're asking. Mm-hmm. But, uh, frankly, I tell them to do that with every source that they use. So, uh, in my mind, I mean, the Bible as a source asks, you know, uh, requires the same sort of thoughtfulness that an encyclopedia as a source, or a dictionary as a source, or a scholarly journal as a source requires. Or Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think I'm going to, you know, go to the mat for the inerrancy of Wikipedia, though. <laughs> <laughs> um. But Wikipedia is a good example of this. I mean, I can, I can go on Wikipedia... And change sentences that were written by experts in their fields, mm-hmm. because I know better. Yeah, but you yeah. wouldn't know that they were written by experts in their field. Yeah, even even if I did know, I'm not sure it would stop me. If I were a certain type <laughs> of person, which you know I am to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. But I really think I really think Weaver missed missed the boat on this one. He he really seems to think that the future people are going to lean more on authority, and if anything, we're leaning less, even though. On some level, we know we should be leaning more. We we know that we know that specialists know more about their field than we do, and yet we don't think that. Do you think Foucault has something to do with that? I I don't know. I mean, Foucault 
Nathan Nathan brought up power as uh, knowledge earlier, which is Foucault. Foucault's whole project seems to be let's examine social structures and see the hidden relationships of power. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, nowhere in Foucault that I'm aware of is he prescriptive. He he may be prescriptive, and I just haven't read that part. He seems to mostly just describe what's going on. So I know there's some debate in the among Foucaultians about uh, about whether he he thinks power is necessarily a bad thing. Or the degree to which his viewpoint or interpretations of his viewpoint have entered culture, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure if uh, if our students don't believe anybody's an expert in anything because they they distrust power. Mm-hmm. Or because they're they're just lazy. I know I I know I've heard I've I've heard the power thing before. Okay, I mean, um, yeah, yeah, just just the idea that, well, you know, they tell you the experts on on thus is such a thing. They tell you this thing, but really they they're doing it so that you know that or that they tell you, um, oh, I I don't know. Don't well, mix. climate change is a great one because it happens on both right. sides. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Like both both sides of that particular debate will say, "Here are our scientists," and the other side will say, "Well, your scientists have an agenda, therefore, la 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 la." Or, for example, um, uh, Brian McLaren claimed on Homebrewed Christianity this week that uh, people who assert <laughs> the uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Orthodox doctrine. Orthodox doctrine are only doing so to prop up the bureaucratic church. <laughs> but you would expect you would expect Brian McLaren to be talking about Foucaultian ideas. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I'm sorry, but no, nothing nothing is more bureaucratic church than you know. No offense, Michael, but uh, the mainline denominations, frankly. Okay, I, I I say that in 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 to say that the the idea of of this existing structure that in in a lot of instances, well, let's talk about the Anglican Church. I think that's a good a good example. It's this big ginormous structure in which someone who doesn't believe that God exists, Spong. yeah, can be a bishop. You know, I mean, I, I you don't you don't see the Anglican Church this this big gigantic bureaucratic structure advocating orthodoxy in order to maintain itself. That's actually the Episcopal Church. Okay, it, and that that is a distinction worth making. Okay, because the Anglicans in America are the conservatives in that in that tradition. Okay, yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, you can insult my my mainlineism as much as you want, David. I'm pro bureaucracy. <laughs> McLaren, I'm sure, is not particularly fond of the mainliners yeah. either. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to. Well, I'm not. I'm not exactly trying to insult the mainline. I'm just saying that 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 seems kind of a stupid statement because it's not like bureaucracy has ever needed cradle orthodoxy in order to maintain itself. Well, and not only that, it's not like an attack on bureaucracy doesn't come from similarly self-serving motives a lot of the time. Oh well, true that. The, the notion that it's only bureaucracy that's corrupt strikes me as uh, 
Pollyanna-ish. It strikes me as a little Rousseauian <laughs> for my taste. Well, sure, and I mean, I, I got in some trouble for pointing out the internal contradiction in one of McLaren's latest books with regards <laughs> to that. So, listeners, if you want to go back to my McLaren posts of 2010, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you're now that now that you now that you put it in those terms, David. I, I obviously Foucault has something to do with this. But we are we are a society that distrusts even the authorities we should trust, mm-hmm. even worldly authorities that have obvious knowledge over us. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I I think you're I think you're right. But at the same time, you know, the the question of authority, you know, it wasn't invented in Weaver's day. No. Um, oh, not by any means. And I mean, yeah. even Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, you know, uh, do not be like those who lord it over you, but call themselves your benefactors. You know, so I mean, it's not as if, the, you know, this is some sort of secular, godless impulse to reject re- authority. You know, I mean, uh, unless you think of the Gospel of Mark as, you know, some sort of subversive book, which I do sometimes. Uh, but, you know, it's a. Uh, it's something that is at the roots of our own Christian tradition as well, right? Well, and he, and even Weaver, especially in the uh, uh, the, the the essay on on uh, the God and Devil terms, certainly mm-hmm. seems to be questioning, um, well, people who would at least have considered themselves authorities at the time, right? Um, right. In in the power sense, um. Mm-hmm. Well, how are we going to take this to class, guys? Well, let me go first, David, because I actually do have to go to a class pretty soon, and I might have to bail out here. Um, <laughs> All right. no, I think that this idea that language is itself sermonic does the very good work of taking the so-called persuasive genres and breaking them out of their silos. Uh, one of the things that bugs me the most about the ways that certain people teach composition classes and if you two do it then it bugs me too so you can come at me if you want to (laughs) is that they assign the title persuasive essay to this text but not the two texts that came before it yeah as if as if (laughs) as if what they were doing before was not trying to persuade a reader to think differently about the subject at hand uh and i mean this is one of those things that again you know my prohibition of the o word in my writing classes, uh, definitely flows from this conviction that, you know, I had before Weaver named it for me, but I like Weaver's name for it. Uh, this idea that anything that you write, anytime that you present a text to a listener, to a reader, to a user online, you are making a case for a different way to think about reality. Mm. Uh, and you know, that might have practical consequences immediately, it might be that those practical consequences don't arise until much later in the process, but at any rate, you are encouraging them to live in a different world than they live in, even if only slightly. Right. And so I think that that central conviction, uh, not only at a manual, I mean, I tried to bring that to bear when I taught my comp classes at UGA, that what you're doing here is not merely some sort of exercise, you know, some sort of hoop that you jump through so you can get onto your major but this is a central truth of what you're going to be doing in your major. In other words, if you go over there to your economics classes and they tell you that all of the 
human interactions in the world are the result of rational decision-making machines. Then you go next door to your advertising classes and they spend a semester teaching you to ma- teaching you how to make sure people don't act as rational decision-making de- machines. Using uh, colors. You, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, you ought to think about that. You ought to see that contradiction. You ought to see, okay, this thing that we call the business department has at its root, you know, some very significant contradictions. And even if you decide I'm happy living inside of those contradictions and making large piles of cash inside of those contradictions, you ought to be honest enough to name them. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, the fact that I just, you know, narrated it that way, it invites you as a fellow rhetorician either to agree with me and then tell me why it's all right to contradict me and say, no, that's not how it is at all. Or to say that might be the case, but it's irrelevant to the matter at hand because of this reason, this reason, and this reason. So, I mean, you know, in my mind, everything that we do as educators is rhetorical. Every text that we put before a listener, a reader, a user is always going to be rhetorical. It's always going to be sermonic. It's always going to be trying to encourage them to think, act, exist differently than they did before they encountered your text, even if only slightly. Uh, Michael, what do you got? I'm going to go a little uh, more pragmatic and a little smaller than you. I think Weaver's discussion of the topics in this essay is a really great way to approach explaining to students the difference between good rhetoric and bad rhetoric. But between mm. how how to make a slippery slope argument that is truthful and fair and uh, appeals to the good parts of human beings versus how to uh, how to avoid one that that's hysterical, as I said earlier, and the same thing with analogies and false analogies. Same thing with appeals to authority. When what authorities can we appeal to? When I think Weaver does a good job of of, of suggesting the limits and the the benefits of those different topics. Well, I'm going to agree with both of you guys, um, and in in some ways take it um, well take it into the classroom, but mostly inside of myself. Um, you you said something about this. Uh, I believe it was earlier this week. Maybe it was your Facebook status or something, Nathan. But uh, that reading this essay makes you remember what a great thing it is to do what you do. Mm, yeah, and um, I, I think that's how, that's how I'm going to take this into the classroom. And you know, I recommend any of our listeners who who find themselves teaching uh, teaching rhetoric and composition, um, you know, get a hold of this book and and read it. But uh, when you go into class, don't, don't don't go in there with your you know your C game, your good enough game. Go in there with your A game because what we're doing is very, very important. Um, you know, in Weaver's terms, we're steering, te- we're trying to, you know, encourage people to to steer others towards what is ultimately good and true and beautiful, and we're trying to do that as well with our students. Um, and in Dante's term terms, that that ultimate true and good and beautiful. Um, you know, is the God that looks back at us uh, yeah. and smiles because we're in we are in His image, and so we should use that that gift of analogy that comes through love, and uh, and so go into our classes motivated to uh, to live that image out. 
Well, that uh, I think wraps up our conversation to uh, for today. Um, listeners, if you would uh, like to give us any kind of feedback or commentary, um, you can s- send us an email at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or you can comment on the show notes when they post at uh, christianhumanist.org slash chb. Um, in the meantime, keep an eye on the blog and uh, you know look for the things that are posted and send us a note when one of us, usually Nathan, says something smart or deep. Um, next week, uh, Nathan's going to be talking about cybernetics. Is that correct? Yes, but I have no idea what that means. Nathan yes. left, so he can't explain it to us. I guess we're all going to learn next week. Yes. Um, I'm going to assume that we're going to be talking about the, the bionic woman um, or the however many million dollar man. Uh, that, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I think we're all going to have to do the robot. Mm-hmm. Or get assimilated into the Borg. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, um, it, it, it'll be fun to uh, tune in next week, audiences and uh, or, or listeners, and uh, find out what cybernetics is along with, well, Michael and I. In the meanwhile, have grand weeks, um, and uh, well, take Luther Luther's advice with you, and uh, remember that you're a sinner. Um, but don't be discouraged by that. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Ooh.